Okay. Well, that's not feminist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rachel Handler, and welcome to Lady Problems, where every Thursday, me and a rotating crew of ladies look at the way that pop culture has treated women in a given week. It is almost always terribly. This week, we have an awesome show. I'm here with Hazel Sills. Hello, Hazel. Hi, Rachel. And we are interviewing the fabulous Britt Marling. Hi, Britt. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) We're so excited. So Britt is the genius woman who co-wrote and stars in Netflix's newest, most bonkers show, The O.A., which premiered this weekend. Uh, If you can, I would suggest watching it before listening to this podcast (laughs) because we are going to get very spoilery. Uh, And then (laughs) later, Hazel, Teo Bugby, Doreen St. Felix, and I will be very seriously discussing the most important question of the holiday season. Is Christmas feminist? Britt, uh, Hazel and I literally have had no lives since we watched the show. Yeah, so. <laughs> we're like fully convinced that we're angels now. Like we're so deep in like the Reddit. We are in Reddit. fuckery of the show. Oh my God, that's great. <laughs> we, like literally I've not done any work. Yeah. Um, Wait, that- that's fantastic. You'll have to tell me what's happening on Reddit and stuff. I haven't even I haven't even gone into any of those portals yet, so I don't know. I think the last thing we read on Reddit was that someone like identified the food pellets <laughs> and said that they had eaten something similar. So you gotta get on. You gotta get online. Okay. This is you're right. This as soon as we finish this conversation, that's what I'm gonna do. You have to. It is fascinating. Um, can you very quickly, like in a sentence or two, which I know is an insane request, describe the show for people who may not have heard of it yet? Yeah, I mean, at, at its core, it, it begins with a, a young blind girl who disappears and she is found seven years later and her sight has been restored. But she won't talk with anybody about what happened over those seven missing years. She, you know, refuses to talk to her parents. She rebuffs the FBI. She won't speak with doctors. And then, oddly, she starts going to this sort of unfinished home in the back of the suburban community that that she grew up in. And there are all these teenage boys there. And she befriends them and begins night after night in a kind of Shahrazad style, telling them the story of her seven missing years. And you realize, as, as she's telling the story, that she may be doing it in order to recruit these boys to some larger mission. That's sort of where it begins. <laughs> where it goes from there would be hard to articulate. A hundred percent, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the show has such interesting things to say about um, about trauma and, and death and the afterlife. And I'm just curious, how did you come up with this particular concept for the show? Well, you know, Zal and I have, have been have been working together for a long time. We met in college, and we were both doing really different things. <laughs> he was studying anthropology, and I was studying economics. And we started making short films when we came out to LA. We sort of went a different way, and I think we found in making short in, in and then later making features that we would come up with really rich and dense worlds that were kind of low fantasy and and took a lot of explaining to dive into. And so by the time you sort of set up the rules of the world and all the parameters and the people in it, you only had like a half hour left in feature length film time to sort of play in that space before it was like, oh, it's over. Um, so I think we started to realize that, that some of the stories were maybe better suited to long format. And we became really interested in the idea of building a long format mind bender mystery in which 
we had sort of solved the mystery up front. And so from the very first hour of storytelling, we could be laying clues and, and riddles to, to where it may ultimately go, even many seasons out, um, should we be so lucky. So that it was sort of a desire to try that that came in first. And then other things sort of caught our attention and, and, and sort of formed this like whirlpool, I guess, um, of the story. We've been obsessing over the clues today as well. Like there's so many things in there that we didn't understand or we feel like we're like too stupid to understand. No. <laughs> but um, you, yeah. I know you said that you've laid these clues. Do you expect viewers to be able to catch them? Or, you know, is it like you need to rewatch it? How do you expect people to like fully understand the story and can it even be fully understood? I think there's sort of two things going on in the story. On, on one hand, there's like a really simple story at its center of a girl who experiences this great trauma and comes back and heals herself by telling the story to this group of teenage boys and these these teenage boys who are sort of lost boys in a sense, you know, and their and their algebra teacher. So it, in that sense, it's a kind of it's a very closed looped. Um, that's a story that's sort of set in the real world. I think the places that her the story she tells them goes goes to all kinds of sort of wild and fantastical places, mm-hmm. and some of those threads at the end are left sort of open ended, uh, so that we can continue to play. Uh, should we be so lucky in, in further seasons? But I think in terms of what you feel, um, I think whatever people feel at the ending of it is is right. You know, Zal and I never talk about what it is that the I guess, objective truth is, because I don't think there really is an objective truth. I mean, we, we make it as storytellers, but then once it's out in the world, it's it's sort of everyone's interpretation is fair game. I know we're going to get a little spoilery in this episode, but like so much of the show is about uh, near-death experiences and sort of envisioning the afterlife or how certain people sort of experience the afterlife even for a brief moment. And I know you did some some research on the sort of near-death experience community. And I'm curious if the visuals in the TV show were inspired by real stories that you heard in your research. It's funny. There's an amazing convergence across sort of cultures and religious backgrounds in terms of um, kind of hallmarks of the near-death experience. You know, a lot of people talk about leaving their body in a kind of um, bird's eye view, point of view over the surrounding, over the outside their body and the surroundings of the experience of their death. And then people will talk about a light at the end of the tunnel and being drawn towards that light. And um, many people talk about feeling a sort of radiant sense of bliss and peace and painlessness. And, um, And I guess we sort of took those hallmark things and then wove our own science fiction storytelling around that. So there's certainly pieces of it that we play with, like the light at the end of the tunnel. But of course, in Homer's near-death experience, that tunnel is revealed to be something very different from a kind of the sort of maybe more spiritual, mystical one we're off, that, that is often described. It ends up being a sort of literal geographic space mm-hmm. for, for Homer. We'll be back with more Lady Problems after this ad. Do you, I, I've noticed, I mean, I we both love all of your work. We love Sound of My Voice and Another Earth. And we were talking earlier that there's this really unapologetic 
earnestness to everything that you do, which I think is really difficult, like as a woman, as a writer, as an actress. How do you stay open? How do you stay vulnerable? Gosh, that's such a good question. (laughs) I feel like I'm probably still trying to figure out the answer. I mean, (laughs) I love what you're saying, and I think it's really true that I think the more complicated life becomes, the more we kind of wrap ourselves in what is cool or what is ironic or what is cynical because it, it feels like a protective coat against having to feel things too deeply or Mm -hmm. get, get caught being moved, you know? And I mean, it makes sense to me given the time we're in (laughs) that we sort of tend to do that or tend to, there tends to be a lot of work that's made in that vein. But I feel like Zal and I from the beginning of, trying to do this project in particular, we were inspired by, there was a, there's a particular quote by David Foster Wallace, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it right now, but <laughs> the sentiment behind it was the idea of making something unfortified and maximally unironic. And I remember reading that and thinking like, wow, yes. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. I think it, I think it requires everyone at every stage to sort of like really let their guard down and try something wild. Um, I think it's just about at every moment trying to figure out how to be honest emotionally so that it never becomes saccharine or maudlin. And that's like such a, that's a, such a fine razor sharp line, you know? And I think, um, Sometimes you're going to make the mistake of tipping off a bit. Yeah. What do you What do you mean by tipping off a bit? Well, I see. I feel like it's like there's this great book by Maggie Nelson uh, called The Argonaut, and Love I her. remember going to yeah. hear her speak about it. And she said in this book, which is kind of it's part criticism, it's part memoir, it's part essay writing, it's part poetry. It's like she's braiding so many different styles and genres of writing. And she said, you know, when you're doing something new like that, when you're trying to put work into a new form, you, you walk this really fine line and you may tip off, you know, suddenly into a version of it that is hackneyed or gross or too emotional or, you know, sappy. And you've got to consistently try to write yourself and get back on that very fine line Mm -hmm. of, doing this thing that's different. And I guess the show is a bit like that. You know, it, it sort of braids a lot of different genres into it, you know, it begins with a kind of mystery or um, coming of age, and then it moves into horror, and then it moves into sci-fi, and then fantasy, and then back to coming of age again. And I think you have to, <laughs> I think for me anyway, I'd rather risk that, you know, and make some mistakes along the way and try something different than um, only play in territory where I know I'm safe. Because then it doesn't feel like I'm growing very much or, or, or risking anything, you know? I feel like the dancing in particular, or the, the movements of the show, like yeah. that seems to me like the biggest risk in this sense. But you guys managed to make it like extremely moving. moving. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> like at the end, I was bawling. <laughs> how, did you, how did you keep that from sort of verging into the territory you're talking about? That's such a good question. I'm so glad. I'm really glad to hear you guys removed. It, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, I think in the script phase, that was really, um, it was an impossible thing to write. You know, Zal and I had talked about this idea that violence is kind of 
uniquely cinematic. You know, you can read a novel and it can be violent and it's one thing, but when you see it visualized in a film, it really it really overwhelms you with the proper sort of shock and, and terror. And so we were thinking from the beginning about is there a kind of cinema, cinematic antidote to violence that's also uniquely maybe best realized in moving image. And and that's sort of what the movements were born from. Um, and it, it was hard to write them. It was hard to learn them. I think... Um, you know, Ryan Heffington is an amazing choreographer. He he did all the choreography and see his music videos. Uh, you may have seen like Chandelier and mm-hmm. things. And I think we've known him for a decade out here in L.A. and have often gone to his shows and his performance pieces. And they're always sublime and amazing. And he's mixing what is awkward with what is graceful and sublime. And so we went to him and we were like, hey, we've built this entire story around the idea of these movements. <laughs> can you come Can you come do the choreography? Because if you don't, we're not sure it's going to come together. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure, Ryan. He read it and he was really moved. And he started showing us these little, these flips of pieces that he was making with two of his dancers, uh, Dina and Ryan. And from the very beginning, it was just like, <gasps> he just got it, you know? I mean, And that's a hard set of constraints. We were like, hey, Ryan, we've got a group of non-dancers. You know, some one of them is 14 and one of them is in her, you know, early 50s. And we have to, like, span that sort of um, gamut of biology and, and body. And, and then we've got to, we've got to, these movements have to make people believe that something otherworldly or extraordinary is possible and yet it can't um can't feel like dance i'm curious i i think a lot of your work is very if not directly political there are threads of of politics and sort of activism i'm thinking about the east in particular and there's a lot going on here about medication and mental illness and the ethics of that and i'm i'm curious if you see this this show or sci-fi in general as as activism or if that's something that you think about when you're writing I think art is always a kind of activism. And certainly anytime I think you tell a story, there your politics are braided in it, even if you don't know it. It's like, I think that's why I had such a hard time acting in the early days is some deeply political part of me was rebelling at the idea of always being the like, the sort of um, having to be a second class citizen as a woman in relation to, to, to men in storytelling. Mm-hmm. Like it just, all the early parts that I was able to audition for is always sort of a thinly underwritten wife or girlfriend or daughter of, you know, who asks the questions that lead, you know, the male hero to articulate all the answers. And I, those weren't necessarily political movies or things at all. They're just, the, the politics of it are embedded in how the story is told and who's given purchase, who's given space, who's given a voice. And so I think certainly like right now, it's, it's particularly exciting to see all these voices finding space in long format storytelling. And certainly I think when we set out to tell this story, we thought, how can we talk about a, a girl who's been traumatized and make her recovery, not from the passive space of being a victim, but give her a sense of agency and entitlement. And how can we, how can she be something of a action hero in small, in small actions or small spaces (laughs) in the suburb, but that there's action to her 
recovery and that her, um, I guess, how do we turn victimhood on its head and mm-hmm. make it something agentful rather than how we traditionally see it? Every character was just so, like, multifaceted and interesting and... Not lucky. The cast is amazing. A.Z. Kaufman is just an incredible casting director, and she she found people from all over. It's it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, isn't Steve? I saw on Instagram or something that he's. Where is he from? The the kid who played Steve. He's from Ireland. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, when we saw his audition tape, I was blown away. I was like, okay, where A.V. Where did you find this kid? Like somewhere in the Midwest, right? Like Chicago, <laughs> Ohio. And she's like, no, he's Irish. <laughs> and then, like when we met him, I could could not believe it. Um, but every casting story in this is really like that. You know, Ian Alexander, who plays Buck, um, when A.V. first went to cast that role, she was like, guys, I really don't know if I'm going to be able to find a F to M transgender Asian American teen like that's who's 14. Like, that's very specific. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she ended up posting um, casting announcements. She couldn't find anybody. She ended up posting cast- casting announcements in trans chat rooms. And all of a sudden, there was this flood of tapes just being uploaded from all over. Um, and Ian Alexander's was one of those tapes. He had made it in his bathroom with his iPhone and uploaded it on YouTube. And like a week later, you know, Netflix calls and it's like, oh, we'd like to cast your son, uh, you know, in this Netflix show. And his parents are like, what? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't That's even crazy. Amazing. Just, you know, it. And, um, and, and Buck, you know, and Ian is, um, is trans and, really brings something incredible to that role because he is so exactly in that experience of being on the cusp of puberty and about to like come of age and navigating the complexity of, of, of identity and acceptance. And he plays the part beautifully. Yeah, he really does. I'm curious too, like, obviously there's a huge already like an internet you know, people are trying to solve the show, like we said on Reddit. Do you, in these interviews that you've been doing or in the stuff that you have seen online, do you feel like there's any facet of the show that people are, like, missing? Like, I'm curious if you're like, why has no one picked up on this thing? Uh, maybe I'm going to have to go on Reddit and dive in. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, Rachel. I don't know if she's been online. Because well, but she's being interviewed. The so quickly. I don't know that I've I've, I've gone as deep as down. I mean, I've seen things on Twitter and I've seen things on Instagram. Right. And and it feel, what it feels like um, that's most exciting is that it feels like people are really taking it in as a unique eight hour experience and aren't trying to classify it. And I think that's really cool because it, it isn't really television and it isn't really film and it isn't really a novel though in places it feels like one. Um, and it's exciting to see people have that kind of openness to something that uncategorizable maybe because mm-hmm. I think that's hard I think it's hard to sit in that kind of openness that's kind of what the show is about too uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah no oh my god yes <laughs> <laughs> we'll just explain your show to you <laughs> I got to thank you, you, you by the way you really just did <laughs> that was such an aha moment yeah <laughs> well thank you so much Britt this was awesome yeah. and we are such big fans of you oh my gosh yes oh Guys, thank you so much. Honestly, it's such a pleasure to get to talk about this show with you. More Lady Problems after this break. For this week's groundbreaking and extremely serious second segment, Hazel and I have brought in two of the most brilliant women we know, our co-host, Teo Bugby. Hello, Teo. 
Hello. And speed dials Doreen St. Felix. Hi, Doreen. What up? Thanks for being here at this important historical moment. Uh, Doreen, Teo, Hayes, and I are going to attempt to answer the age-old question, the question on everyone's minds as we approach the celebration of Christ's birth and bow at the pagan bush we have yanked violently from the cold and unforgiving earth. Is Christmas feminist? To really find out... <laughs> to really find out whether Christmas promotes equal rights for women or actively propagates their vengeful oppression, we'll have to examine its component parts. As our starting point, I ask this esteemed group, is Santa feminist? Okay, Hazel, I know you have some thoughts on this. I do not think Santa is feminist because he is a tool of surveillance culture. <laughs> He's always watching you. He knows what you're doing bad, and that's a very subjective and I just think he's creepy. Why is he always watching you? He knows and when I you're think awake. We should interrogate. Well, he that sees more. you when you're sleeping. It's mm-hmm. like a red flag. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think the real question is: Is Santa black? He is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna let you know why. Historian speaking, <laughs> Santa basically performs all this unpaid labor. The elves are slaves. Like, there's wow. just no other way to read that, in my opinion, right. as a woke identity <laughs> politics writer. Well-oiled. Um, yeah. <laughs> so to me, like, that's that's more pressing. So because Santa is, in fact, oppressed, I don't think that he can necessarily facilitate the oppression of other people. Wow. That's that's a really important question, Doreen. Yeah. I'm, Thank you. Here. Santa is also... I'd just like to say, not unlike a leader of another religion, David Miscavige of the Church of Scientology, in that he keeps his wife on lock in a room where no one sees her. She has no job. Where is Mrs. Claus? (laughs) Where is Mrs. Claus? Has anyone seen her? Call Leah Romini. Yeah. I have questions. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Okay. What about Joseph? Is Joseph feminist? Doreen? Joseph is the... He is the urtext feminist, male <laughs> feminist, because let me tell you about this man. Joseph let a teenage girl tell him that a spirit, an ether, <laughs> impregnated her. <laughs> and she was his betrothed. And he was like, you know what? I guess I'm going to not only accept this truth, I'm going to parent this child. Wow. He taught Jesus carpentry. He yeah. didn't gaslight her. He he listened he to her. led her yeah. to that stable, asked no questions. And he's a cuck. <laughs> <laughs> he is a cuck. Joseph, the original cuck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what about Jesus? Is Jesus feminist? Not as feminist as Joseph. <laughs> Certainly more feminist than God, who is so true. Re- down to like impregnate people at will. Right. Without um, their consent. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Mm, he turned water into wine, which is very chill. feminist. It's very <laughs> yes. chill. It's yes. Feminist. Yeah. He also stood up for Mary Magdalene. Yeah, right. He had his hose and he like watched out yeah. for it. Literally. Patron saint sex, sex workers. Sex workers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, excuse me. Yeah, we need to correct that. <laughs> Sorry, no disrespect. He was sex positive. To Mary Magdalene. He was the original sex positive feminist. Yes. Okay. What about the reindeer? So we have Rudolph, we have Dasher, we have Dancer, we have Prancer, we have Vixen, we have Comet, we have Cupid, we have Donner, and we have Blitzen. Okay, so (laughs) I've talked about this a little bit in private, but I just think that this whole situation is really fucked up because Vixen, as far as we can tell, is the only woman on the whole— Yeah, Dancer is a question mark. 
dancers like gender, gender neutral. Non-gender. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like we have some that like are open to question, but like why is Vixen having to represent out here by herself? No support. And why don't we get to hear her story? Right. We just hear <laughs> <laughs> We just hear Rudolph's story. And that's we it. We only know her her his side. Yeah. It's always his side his side of the story. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just because he has wow. a fucked up nose. What about her story? The E true Hollywood story <laughs> of Vixen the reindeer. Also, why is her name Vixen? That's like extremely mm-hmm. reductive. She's Honestly, like the green M&M of the bunch. Yes. Like she has to be slutty because she's a woman. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Have some more imagination. Okay. The Island of Misfit Toys. The Island of Misfit Toys is a leather bar and anyone who says otherwise <laughs> is deluding themselves. <laughs> That's all I have to can say about un- that. Can you unpack this a little? Yeah. Better? Okay. So like in the uh, stop motion animation classic Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer winds up on this island of misfit toys where it's just like all of these like very, very nice, very polite people with like sort of like like – deformities maybe like toy deformities but that is a euphemism ladies and gentlemen and what they're really talking about is like gay little rudolph like wandering into his first leather bar and finding acceptance after a lifetime of bullying (laughs) (laughs) honestly like what other interpretation is there like i can read a book like i know what metaphors are yes you're right. Stonewall and the <laughs> Island of Misfit Toys. I'm serious. ABC Family like was letting us know early where to find your people. So it, when Rudolph goes to the leather bar, he have you ever feminist. been to a leather bar? People are so nice there. I don't know if Rudolph isn't feminist as much as the story mm. and the focus. So Rudolph perhaps. himself is still a tool of the patriarchy. Rudolph, okay, but does Rudolph even know? Like, Rudolph is, like, he's beaten down by the time he gets to— That's true. He's also black. He's yeah. gay. He's a gay black man. Yeah. The original, the original <laughs> Moonlight. <laughs> the original Moonlight was actually Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He was bullied for the first like two thirds of his life. Yes. <laughs> and then at the end, everyone loved him. Wow. Oh my god. We are changing minds wow. here today. Okay. What about snow? Well, snow is white feminist (laughs) because what snow does is it comes along and blankets everything (laughs) under its own narrative, right? You, like, can't see the shapes and the colors of any of the materials that snow decides are its own. Snow (laughs) reminds me of so many white women in my life. It's like you're trying to move, you're trying to, you know, travel or whatever, and then, like, this big white obstacle comes in your way. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Okay, what about uh, Frosty the Snowman? Well, we took issue with the fact that when people make snow people, mm-hmm. they typically make men. Yes. And why? The why? phallic carrot symbol uh-huh. represents yes. the nose. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, there's a very limited appearance to snow people, and it is the appearance of masculinity. Okay, being cold, is it feminist? Being cold or the existence of cold? Mm. Let's t- let's let's talk about being cold first. Yeah. <laughs> being cold, I feel like is very uh anti-feminist. Because, being cold. Yeah. I was going to say that it it like is feminist in that it like describes women's realities, but like <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, because it's like really like all office buildings are catered to the body temperatures of men. Oh. True. Right. This is science. Right, I know, but like it, are we 
anti-feminist for experiencing the cold as cold. That's why I'm asking, like, <laughs> yeah. if the being of cold is I the see, problem. I see. I see. I think see. coldness affects women differently than men. <laughs> You're so right, Hazel. Yes. Thank you for bringing up this point. <laughs> <laughs> so, in that sense, it is not feminist. Yeah. That said, I reserve the right to be cold. Yeah. Yes. Same. Same. If you if you are cold because you want to be cold, then it's feminist. Yeah. Like the whole archetype of the frigid bitch. <laughs> right. I think no, is that's really absolutely emotionally. We should consider like the power of coldness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. If you Freeze. choose to be cold. Right. Yes. If you decide to go to a temperate, an intemperate place wearing the wrong attire on purpose and you want to be cold, Honestly, that's feminist. Honestly, like- never gets cold. <laughs> Said by one Cardi B. Cardi B, the oh. queen. Yes. Um, okay, is ham feminist? Oh. Oh. Well, it's pink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> glossier. <laughs> How to make a glossier pink ham this Christmas? <laughs> Lots of more, yeah, like more salt. Very dewy. <laughs> Please send me more priming moisturizer, glossier. Send me you. boy brow. Thanks. <laughs> Um, also, <laughs> honey glazed ham or just regular ham? Honey glazed ham, more feminist. The tough question. Mm. Yeah. I think honey- because pigs are so smart, <gasps> eating ham is not feminist. Pigs mm. have 30-minute orgasms. Just <gasps> throwing that out there. Wow. <laughs> well, then, oink, oink. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Don't ever get on pigs level 2017. Uh, okay, we're going to do a few Christmas movies. The Holiday, Is It Feminist? No movie where Jack Black has sex is feminist. (laughs) (laughs) I say it is feminist because Kate Winslet turns that fuckboy away. She does. That horrible man. And, like, her getting Jack Black is very secondary to her happiness. She becomes Mm -hmm. happy when she rejects all men. She's stuck with Jack Black. This is the only thing I can see about this movie. Also, there's beautiful houses in it. Beautiful. I don't think it's feminist because Jude Law drives on the wrong side of the street. Wow. (laughs) Important, important. Europe, get it together. Europe is not feminist. (laughs) Yeah. Not in the least. No, no, no. Okay, The Family Stone. A controversial film in this group. I haven't seen this white film, so. (laughs) (laughs) It is pretty white. Okay. um, Although there is a gay, deaf brother in an interracial relationship. I say it is. That part is the most cringeworthy part of the whole movie. Ridiculous. so wild. It is. They're like, let's give him all the things. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, we're going to have, like, Christmas dinner, and then we're all going to talk about whether it's appropriate for him to be deaf, gay, and in an interracial relationship. That's, like, the controversy at the heart yeah. of the dinner. I love how being in an interracial relationship is meant to be, like, a disability. It is in this movie. They're like, he's really wow. got a lot of hardships. I feel like they don't say that explicitly, but it's implied. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I um, say it's feminist because Sarah Jessica Parker is playing a role that's not Carrie Bradshaw. Mm. Wow. And she's, quote unquote, unlikable. Yeah, she's I an say, unlikable woman. Yeah. I say it's feminist because you should be allowed to fuck the person that you're dating's brother if you want to. Or sister. <laughs> or sister. Yeah, exactly. This is a family Christmas movie. <laughs> Listen, I don't watch white Christmas films, so I'm not familiar with this debauchery. What about Love Actually? Have you seen that? Of course. Okay, okay. Thoughts. Yeah. Is it feminist? I think it's feminist because everybody hates it now. Mm-hmm. The t- like when it became cool to hate love actually was just the lamest cultural phenomenon ever. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you hate a Christmas movie? Right. Good it's job. True. Oh, yeah, you're such a badass. You're so smart. Yeah. <laughs> You've seen the truth. <laughs> so 
sorry I'm a plebe who likes crying. <laughs> I fucking love love, love actually. Yeah. It's an amazing movie. And there's some there's definitely some moments in it that are questionable, but we don't have to talk about like those. Like the the fact that there are three plot lines <laughs> in which men have the hots for their female secretaries mm-hmm. slash oh, housekeepers. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. What yeah. are you going to do? Love, you love who you love. Uh, you're right. Love is blind. Love is pretty feminist, so if yeah. it happens, mm-hmm. it happens, and you're right. Okay, lastly, is the classic Christmas film A Christmas Carol feminist? That's the one where he is, like, visited by the ghosts, right? Wow, yeah. There's a lot to break down in yeah. this. Yeah. Ghosts, very feminist. Very. Mm-hmm. That's, like, we've hit, we've explained why this is, but, like, the... Just like the many lives of any kind of person is essentially a feminist concept. However, Ebenezer Scrooge, not feminist. No. If this had happened to like that hoe that he was dating when he was 25, then maybe. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. like we need to consider the full picture. Nightgowns though, feminist. Yeah. He very. Wears he wow. wears a very long gossamer sort yes. of flowing mm-hmm. contraption. That's very And feminist. that thing where your bed has like drapes around it. So yeah. Oh, God. Old you guys. You're taking me back to eight years old. <laughs> So, is or is not Christmas feminist? Hazel? Yes, because there is a lot of death in it and presence. (laughs) 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 And good food, which I think are all feminist things. Thank you. Teo? No. No. No, because it's ruled by Santa at this point. We've given up our feminist leader, Jesus, and I'm a big advocate for, like, returning to basics. Mm. Until America goes back to Jesus, Christmas will never be feminist. Thank you, Teo. Thank Doreen. you, Pastor. Thank you. <laughs> I think that Christmas is extremely bigly feminist because I get gifts during it, and there is a clause in, like, the feminism manifesto that uh-huh. if you make Doreen happy, like, it just always qualifies as a feminist. It is feminist thing. if it makes you happy. Yeah. And I love to get gifts. So The only reason I'm saying that Christmas isn't feminist is because I have to go to Florida this year. And that's Florida's not, not Florida's feminist. Florida's not, yeah. oh not feminist. Uh, okay, I'm going to say that it is feminist, too, because I choose to celebrate Christmas, even though I'm Jewish, and it lets me. And it's like a mutually choice is beneficial. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, choice is very feminist. And I can still be Jewish and have a tree that says Happy Hanukkah on it. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's just really intersectional. I mean, that's what Jesus died for. You know Jesus was Jewish. Mm-hmm. Jesus never converted to Christianity. <laughs> He's a ghost out here still celebrating Hanukkah. <laughs> so. Thank you, Dorian. some of that. Thanks to Britt Marling for putting up with Hazel and my Reddit theories about the OA. And thanks to my lovely co-hosts, Teo Bugby, Hazel Sills, and Speed Dial's Doreen St. Felix for joining me in this demented conversation. Of course. Thank you. The OA is out now on Netflix. Speed Dial's Christmas episode is out today wherever you find your podcasts. And if you want to give us a holiday present, which is extremely feminist, please leave us a rating on iTunes and tell a friend to subscribe. Happy Christmaca, and we'll be back in the new year. This episode of Lady Problems was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. 
You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. Bye.